0: Hey guys, you are watching The Jacobin Show. I'm your host, Jen Pan. Uh, We air live every Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern. So if you're tuning in, uh, thank you. Good to see you. Um, Please subscribe to the channel and hit like if you haven't already. Uh, before we start today, I also want to especially thank our YouTube members. Um, I'm very excited about today's show because we have an interview with Adolf Reed, and it's actually not the usual Zoom interview. Uh, Ariella and Kale were able to sit down with Adolf in person in New York, and the interview is... Um, filmed and edited professionally uh, and the reason why I bring up the YouTube members is obviously because of your support um, we're we're now able to start to move toward doing bigger and better videos like that. Um, I hope Kale doesn't mind if I just share a teaser that we actually have quite a few hours of footage of Adolf Reed uh, and some of that is going to be for a different video project that is to come. We have a lot of other great videos that are kind of in the works. So again, thank you for your support. Thank you for bearing with us as, uh, we, we try to figure out our video channel on, on, you know, as the shoestring operation that we are, Uh, we really appreciate you guys. And, um, yeah, like I said, it's a great interview. Um, I, I think you guys will really like it. Uh, it's, it's, Ariella has, has, you know, Talk to Adolf Reed about his new book, *The South*, um, which, if you guys uh, haven't haven't gotten a chance to check it out yet, it's really great. It's out now from Verso, and you'll hear more about that. Um, now, for my part, I also have some comments coming up about um, some new polling that has come out about Biden's approval ratings, and also looking at what voters think about the Democrats and the Republicans, and how how both of those parties handle the economy. Um, You guys have probably or you you may be familiar with the kind of old chestnut that Republicans do a better job on the economy. Lots of people say that it's a myth that's been, I think, floating around for several decades. And, you know, in light of the past four decades of failed trickle down policy, I want to look at why people still believe this to be true. So that said, um, obviously, the thing at the top of the news uh, this week and last week has been the situation in Ukraine, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So to that end, I actually wanted to bring on a guest uh, from the Jacobin Circle, Bronco Marchitich. He is a staff writer at Jacobin, and he's been covering uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Um, He is also the author of the book Yesterday's Man, The Case Against Joe Biden, Uh, If you guys watched the State of the Union last night and his recent article in Jacobin, which I'm going to be talking to him about today, is four ways to counter Russian aggression that don't risk nuclear war. So first of all, Bronco. Your article, of course, lays out a couple different solutions for countering Russian aggression uh, that that don't risk escalating the nuclear threat. And before we get into those solutions proper, um, I want to ask you about sanctions, because obviously the U.S., uh, Canada, uh, European nations, the U.K., plenty of nations, uh, so far the kind of front, first, first response to Russia has been economic and financial sanctions. And this is kind of interesting because I feel like the expressed... Uh, motivation behind these sanctions was to, you know, punish Putin, punish the Russian elite. But of course, over the last week we've seen that the value of the ruble has plummeted. Uh the, the Russian economy appears to be heading into a depression. So let's talk about sanctions for a minute. Is this the right tactic or what does this achieve and does this actually help de escalate the situation?
1: Well I think for for those of us on the left and people who care about the Ukrainian people, people who want to end war, I think that the that point of sanctions should be to put pressure uh along with political pressure diplomatic pressure whatever other kind of pressure you can that doesn't escalate the conflict on putin on the russian leadership to to end the war or to to agree as some sort of ceasefire uh with ukraine um you know i think the the way these sanctions started out which was to to target some of the oligarchs to target the russian leadership that was the right way to go um mm-hmm. you know i think obviously you. you the, the the West or the international community whatever words or euphemisms you want to use we we want to express this approval towards us and we want to deter this from happening uh, again you know whether at the hands of Russia or you know another another country um the the question is are these sanctions that are now have enlarged and and, and broadened and are now really not just specifically targeting the Russian elite but are very much um uh, turning into a form of collective punishment is that really the way we want to go uh, you know European leaders uh, have have spoken about collapsing the Russian economy essentially uh, which sort of uh, moves us beyond just sort of punishment to, to, to something akin to economic warfare uh, my worry is that uh, if if you end up taking such a indiscriminate um approach to to, mm-hmm. to punish uh russia by essentially you know making ordinary russians lives miserable i it could beyond the moral aspect obviously we, we we this is an appalling way to think about punishing a country for its crimes you know and this it's it's osama bin laden's logic right the idea that the citizenry of a country is is responsible and equivalent to the crimes of its of its um its government or its mm-hmm. leaders so we don't want to uh, take that view uh, and but beyond that, just if, if we think about the, the strategy here, what the outcome is going to be, you know, at the moment, there is a, a quite a lot of opposition within Russia to this war. Yep. It's difficult to know exactly what, because obviously uh, you're not going to get accurate poll results uh, and and the media, the Russian media is not really going to give you an accurate picture. And obviously there's been a lot of repression that's been heightened over the past uh, year in particular, but but uh, even even before then, that means that. Uh, some of these protests that have been happening have been kind of suppressed yeah. uh, however, what we 've seen is we 've not we've just seen celebrities uh, and, and athletes and other prominent individuals coming out and saying we 'd not want this war, we want this war to end but we 've also there 's been a a flood of petitions and open letters from a variety of uh, 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 professions or sectors of the Russian uh, Russian society and economy that have uh, made their opposition uh, uh, clear. You know, the, the Boris Yeltsin Presidential Center, for instance, uh, called for an end to hostilities. That's a that's a presidential center museum that gets. Half of its funding from the the, uh, the the Russian government, and actually Putin is is one of its donors. Um, so they came out and, and they said, you know, we don't want this war. We've also seen the the Russian Orthodox clergy. I think last I saw it was something like 158 uh, members of the clergy who came out, mm. and, and the clergy has up to now been pretty allied with Putin because they've they've uh, supported his kind of social conservative. Stances, um, And, you know, I could go on and on down the list. But the point is that there, I think all of this suggests that there is a serious um, uh, mood against the war within Russia. And what I would worry is that these sanctions by creating such misery for people within Russia, you know, ordinary war averse Russians, that it then uh, not only sort of kills this this feeling of global solidarity that I think exists right now between uh, the leaders of, of of the world, and also you know people all over the world who are who are quite shocked at this and, and horrified at this war, um, and the Russian people. But then that also maybe gives Putin some sort of rallying cry to right. to basically get this this, this disgruntled populace on his side, and he says, "Well, look, the West is the one, you know." Maybe you're not happy about the war, but the West is now uh, using this as an opportunity to kind of squeeze you and to destroy our country, um, and and you you know you basically kill whatever anti-war movement exists. And a similar thing happened in, in Yugoslavia actually with the NATO bombing, yeah. where the the because uh, NATO began bombing uh, 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 Serbia, um, the the movement against Milosevic uh, ended up. Um, kind of dissipating uh, mm-hmm. because the, the enemy didn't, it was no longer Milosevic at that time. It became NATO for, right. for bombing ordinary people. So so I think that's some of the concerns that, that that uh, I think are, are pretty well founded about this kind of indiscriminate approach that's being taken now.
0: Yeah. So let's now turn to some of the solutions that you have offered, um, because I think that you, you laid out four different solutions that, you know, uh, don't go down this path, uh, which I think are really interesting. Um, and, Uh, you know, a couple of the solutions that you had put forward, I I view as sort of more longer term and not something that we can like get done today. But one solution in particular, uh, which is increase humanitarian rather than military aid is something that you advocate for. And that is something that can be done rather quickly. So can you talk about that a little bit?
1: Yeah, I I think it's kind of revealing or uh, that that the the weapons that are being sent to ukraine and i and i don't know you know i i'm not a a military strategist uh and and so i really don't know whether that's gonna change much of the balance of of the the military balance uh in in ukraine's favor i don't know how much it's played into you know this resistance the surprisingly strong resistance from ukraine but fundamentally i don't really think i i suspect it's not going to change much of of what's going on however uh the 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 uh, justification that's been used to to just uh, send weapons, which is a billion dollars of military aid in the last year alone, is out of concern for the Ukrainian people, uh, mm-hmm. right? That's that's what everyone who's kind of supporting this says. We have to support the Ukrainian people. You know, these these uh, javelins, these Stinger missiles, all this stuff—all that matters to the to the uh, uh, Ukrainian people. That's what Conor Lamb uh, said uh, uh, recently. Um, but if we care about the Ukrainian people, okay, well, sure, the weapons are being sent. OK, uh, there's there's uh, arguments for and against for why that's a that's a good or bad idea. But surely, if we care about the Ukrainian people, most of whom are not actually fighting in the war, uh, most of whom are either you know, fleeing the country or uh, have no access to health care, you know, uh, who need food, who need uh, clothing, who need shelter. Surely we should at the very, very least. Uh, make the humanitarian assistance to to ensure that they can survive this period for as long as it lasts. Hopefully, not much longer. Uh, you know, relatively unscathed. But the reality is, you know, I told you a billion dollars over the past uh, year alone in military aid to Ukraine. A lot of that has come just in the last few months. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think just the other day there was 350 million dollars worth of military aid that was sent over. Meanwhile, uh, over the past eight years, so since the Maidan revolution in 2014, the US has uh, sent over just 400 million or just over $400 million in humanitarian assistance. And this is to a country that is, is very poor. Uh, Ukraine is 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 you know if you look at its standings and the kind of development index, it it's very very low. It was it was absolutely um you know wrecked in the in the in the wake of the the post Soviet collapse and the neoliberalization that followed. Um, so you would think that 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 would be kind of a more of a high priority if you really if your concern here genuinely was the Ukrainian people. And you know I I think obviously I think that does tell us something about what policymakers really what their priorities are but beyond that i think you know we should just call for this to be upped anyway as just a moral good as as, as Mm -hmm. a way to get a suffering people through a terrible terrible crisis um so i wish there was more of that going on um unfortunately you know the most prominent voices tend to be just calling for you know more weapons uh uh, and, and more military support
0: yeah so, talk to us now about uh, some of the other solutions that you put forward. Because, like I sort of hinted at, um, they're a little bit longer term, but I think they're really important as well. So, can you run through those?
1: Yeah, sure. I think in the immediate term, uh, I think uh, it's good that there's this crackdown going on in the UK. There's this this uh, long overdue crackdown on on you know oligarchs hiding their money. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it shouldn't just be limited to the, to the UK. This should be a worldwide thing because obviously, yeah. if you shut down one Tax haven, there's there's countless others that you can you can go to. So I think this should be a worldwide thing. I think you know, look, uh, Biden already got uh, uh, the world leaders together to agree, at least in principle, on a fifteen uh, percent minimum corporate tax rate uh, globally. Mm-hmm. So we c- we've seen that that we can actually do this thing. Where we coordinate. Domestic policy globally, recognizing that that you know th- there can be some sort of shared economic policy throughout the world, and I think cracking down on tax havens, you know, the the counts of the amount of money that is being stashed in these things is uh, ranges from I think something like eighteen trillion to thirty six trillion dollars. Right. Um, so just imagine if that was instead of being hidden away, that was actually being taxed by by these countries, um, and uh, you know that could be put towards a, a whole variety of goods. Uh, and one of which is, I think, in the longer term, what we what we need to be calling for and what we need to take away from this is the need to aggressively invest in renewable energy to move away from dependence on fossil fuels. The reason why uh, the West has found it so difficult uh, to deal with or well, to respond to Putin in this case, not just Putin, but we think of other authoritarian uh, countries that uh, have huge oil and gas reserves like Saudi Arabia which you know uh, almost certainly facilitated the September 11 attack and yet faced absolutely no punishment for it from the United States. Why is that? Well, these countries know that because our entire societies and economies uh, run on fossil fuels, that there's only so much uh, you know, the international community can actually do to, to potentially sanction them. Um, or at the very least, they assume that they can accept a certain amount of risk in the way they act on the international stage um, and uh, because of, of, of the fact that they have this product that we all need basically to live right. our lives. Right. Um, and so the sooner we can change it so that we don't We no longer live our lives needing to to have oil and gas, you know, funding, fueling our electricity, uh, you know, our transport, our shipping, all of that stuff. Uh, The sooner I think um, it'll be harder for some of these countries to to act in these outrageous ways, not just Putin's Russia, but, you know, I mean, look, right now, Saudi Arabia for the, I believe, seventh year uh, is still carrying on this horrific war, which... Not to undercut what's happening in Ukraine, but the, the war in Yemen has been, in, by every measure, far more uh, horrendous and, right. and, and catastrophic on a on far bigger scale. Uh, for seven years, very little outrage about that, and it's actually been supported by a lot of the countries that are now you know um uh, uh, so, you know kind of pointing to russia and and Putin as kind of the 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 sole evil in the world, and why are they able to get away with that? Why are they able to count on Western support for this this horrific you know almost genocidal war in yemen well it 's because we we need their oil, so the sooner we can we can move away from that the the better it is and and I think that kind of hints at, at the the last point that I made, and you know these four ideas are by no means the the most um uh, an exhaustive list. This was just right. sort of right. four things that I I thought would have been a good idea. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there's plenty plenty more creative ways I think we can respond uh, in a non-military way. But the fourth thing that that I said was, you know, we in the West need to clean our own houses yeah. uh, because the we just saw today there was this UN vote right mm-hmm. uh, to condemn Russia's war to to demand the withdrawal. Uh, of russian troops from ukraine um it overwhelmingly of course it passed however there were many notable uh abstentions uh and and i think part of that lies in the fact that in in the global south in say latin america in other places there is a profound I i wouldn't even say skepticism there's uh the the uh kind of framing by the West of this is, you know, we we care about international law, we care about international norms and human rights, and that's why we're doing this, is considered pretty laughable and, right. and dishonest. And the reason why is because Western countries are supporting things like the the, the Saudi uh, war in Yemen. It's mm-hmm. because of things like the Iraq war. It's because, yep. you know, just before, well, just as this, uh, war was being ramped up by Putin, uh, you had the United States withdraw from a 20-year occupation of a country yep. and then essentially punish its population for choosing the lesser evil by right. uh, seizing the foreign reserves of that country and then not just seizing them, uh, freezing them, but 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 taking half of them for themselves, saying we're going to use this to pay the victims of September 11, which the ordinary... People of Afghanistan had nothing to do with. So as, right. as long as there's this hypocrisy in, in Western foreign policy, it's difficult to uh, have people take this seriously. And I think, I mean, in this case, there's a, a remarkable amount of international unity around mm-hmm. condemning Putin and responding in some way, but that's not always going to be the case. And it's because of this this exact kind of behavior. So I think that's yeah. another thing that we that we should uh, be calling yeah. for in the West. Let's be morally consistent. Of course, let's condemn Putin, but let's also condemn and end the wars that that we ourselves are responsible for.
0: Yeah. So I guess kind of related to that, I I wanted to end on a more general question. uh, And that's... um... You know, I feel like in the kind of weeks leading up to the invasion, lots of people on the left, myself included, did not think that Putin would actually invade. Right. Like we heard a lot Mm. of uh, very smart left commentators and journalists and even people who study Russia for a living kind of say that they didn't think that this was going to happen. Um, And actually, I want to shout out people like Matt Taibbi and Mark Ames and uh, Crystal and Sagar on Breaking Points, because, you know, they were people who had. Uh, I suppose, sort of approach the issue skeptically, but then later, you know, have now come out to say like, well, I guess we were wrong on this issue. Let's look at what happened. Um, so a general question is, were you surprised? Uh, and as a follow up, like, why do you think the left got this wrong, so to speak?
1: I mean, I was surprised yeah. that he took the 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 most extreme and and from my point of view, risky option. I, I always uh, thought an invasion was was possible and yeah. that, you know no one should rule it out because putin after all is a very ruthless person he's a very dangerous person he doesn't he, if he sees it in his interest to violate international law and and do all manner of horrendous things he'll do it um i think the reason uh why people were, were sure that that an uh, invasion wasn't going to happen or, or people like myself thought it was the least likely option was because a, a full-scale invasion to uh you know, potentially do regime change or even occupy Ukraine. I'm not really sure what his end game is here, mm-hmm. but it, it it seemed like the most risky option. It seemed like the most trouble for what it was worth for him, if we're just sort of talking about strategy and not not in terms of, of morality. Um Because, you know, if you have to... Uh, we saw... What happened in Iraq and Afghanistan right, and right. many other countries that have been invaded over the past, you know, twenty years, and and what that looks like for the invader? Uh, we saw it with with the Soviet Union in Afghanistan, yeah. so it just seemed like you know Putin, uh, 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 he's a bad man, of course, but he's generally kind of a calculating figure. Uh, so you know, you look at some of the things he did uh, before this that were that were kind of uh, that were not kind of that were violating international law. Uh, you know, the annexation of Crimea uh and and you know the, the the intervention in georgia those were both opportunistic kind of uh uh responses um he sort of saw his moment and he decided to to uh sort of jump in and and use it to to get what he wanted um and in this case uh this, this i don't know exactly what his decision making was what the process of decision making was but uh it this seemed to to it was not just a spontaneous thing uh, he must have known for a long time that that invasion was a possibility, and so um you know I think we 're just seeing right now exactly why it was such a risk and and uh why he may have miscalculated It seems like right. on every level both the the russian people 's tolerance for for this but also the international community's tolerance for it, um, it, it appears to have kind of, uh, and actually the Ukrainians ability to resist all right. of that seems to have, have, he seems to have underestimated um, why we got it wrong. You know, I think I mentioned that to you before that that Putin is, uh, uh, you know, I, I think he is a calculating figure, even if he is, if he, even if he can make mistakes uh, as he has here and he has uh, previously. And I think uh, the other reason is that the, we have this view of Putin in the West that I think kind of suits him. Um, yeah. People think that they're kind of <laughs> insulting him, or that this is kind of a negative portrayal of him. But uh, both both the Republicans and the Democrats they both view Putin as this kind of evil genius, as this right. this malevolent mastermind. Um, for Democrats, you know, it, they they look at that and they say, well, you know, he's such a bad man. We have to to do everything we can to, you know, maybe, uh, either, either, uh, start a conflict with him or to, to, you know, uh, knock him off, uh, his perch in power. Um, for the Republicans, I think they look at it and they go, Oh, you know, this is what, a, what a mastermind tactician. We should act like this. We should be just as ruthless and kind of, um, uh, uh, contemptuous of, of, yeah. of norms, international law. But the reality is that I don't, I don't think he is a mastermind. I think, mm-hmm. you know, people said the same thing about, about Hitler, right? That <laughs> uh, he was this genius and, and everything. And in reality, he was a guy who took a lot of gambles and they worked out for him a lot. And then at one point they didn't work out for him so right. much anymore. <laughs> Um, and I, and it seems like, you know, I, I don't know where this is going to end up. Uh, I don't know if, uh, what's going to, when, when, the, when the dust is settled and, and hopefully it will be soon, I don't know what the state of Russia is, uh, going to yeah. be, um, but it doesn't look particularly good right now for him. Um, uh, you know, so it seems like he, he did that very thing this time. He, he made a gamble that was maybe a foolhardy. Um, And he is suffering the consequences. Unfortunately, so are uh, the the Russian people as well.
0: Yeah. All right. So again, Bronco Martatic has been covering Russia and Ukraine for Jacobin. Uh, He's a staff writer over there. And his latest, this is one of his latest articles. um, But the one that we just talked about is four ways to counter Russian aggression that don't risk nuclear war. Bronco, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks. All right. So again, we have Adolf Reed coming up, uh, a great interview that, as I mentioned before, was shot and edited professionally. So if I do say so myself, we have some of the best video footage of Adolf Reed that exists right now. Stay tuned for that. I will be making comments as well in a little bit. But first, a word from our sponsor, Verso Books.
2: Join the Versa Book Club and get every new ebook that Versa publishes every month as well as one to three books in the mail. All Versa Book Club members also get 50% off everything on the website. The Comrade tier is only $20 a month for your first 3 months, and if you join in March, you'll get these books. Feminism or Death: How the Women's Movement Can Save the Planet by Francois Déobon, a new edition of a classic work of French feminist theory. Mistaken Identity, Race and Class in the Age of Trump by Asad Haider, a challenge to the way we understand the politics of race and the history of anti-racist struggle. The Politics of Immunity, Security and the Policing of Bodies by Mark Neoclius, an intellectual history that exposes the politics underpinning the way immunity is imagined. And The Benjamin Files by Frederick Jameson, the paperback edition of this comprehensive exploration of all of Benjamin's major works. Become a member today at versobooks.com.
0: All right, thanks as always to our sponsors over at Verso. As I mentioned, I've got some comments on the domestic front, uh, so let's dive in. So right on the eve of Joe Biden's State of the Union address, a Washington Post-ABC News poll found, probably to no one's surprise, that Biden's floundering approval ratings have hit a new low. Only 37% of respondents said they approved of the job Biden was doing, while 55% said they disapproved. The poll had even more bad news for Democrats, and it had to do with the economy. As the Post notes, the president appears to be weighted down by Americans' sour assessment of the economy. Today, 75% of Americans rate the economy negatively, up from 70% in November. That represents the worst rating since 2013 in post-ABC polls. By a wide margin, Americans say the economy has gotten worse since Biden took office. What's more is that 54% of respondents, or a clear majority, said they trusted Republicans over Democrats on the economy. Now, I want to break down this last point because people trusting Republicans over Democrats on the economy is something that has shown up in polling for quite some time. In fact, the myth that Republicans are better at handling the economy than Democrats has been so widespread that back in 2016, Salon published an entire article dedicated to debunking it. But just to look at some recent examples, back in November of last year, an NBC Marist poll found that voters favored Republicans over Democrats on the economy by 18 percentage points. Likewise, in 2020, nearly 80 percent of registered voters polled by Pew Research said the economy was the most important issue to them. And among those respondents, 49 percent said Republicans were better on the economy compared to only 40 percent who said Democrats were better. So we know that Republicans are the party of big business and trickle down economics. And we also know that over the last four decades, these types of policies have sent inequality through the roof, suppressed wages and eroded stable, high paying union jobs in favor of expanding a precarious and low wage service sector. Now, given all of that, why do people continue to say they trust Republicans on the economy? Well, the short answer is that for decades, Democrats have also been a party of big business and trickle-down economics, just one that's slightly less ruthless or, depending on your perspective, less efficient than the Republicans. For instance, let's take the issue of trade. While the push for a North American free trade zone began in the 1980s with Ronald Reagan, it was formally cemented into law in 1993 by a bipartisan Congress and, of course, Democratic President Bill Clinton in the form of the North American Free Trade Agreement, or NAFTA. NAFTA, like other free trade agreements, struck down a number of tariffs, quotas, and other so-called barriers to trade between North American countries, and the problem is that this almost exclusively enriched corporations and economic elites at the expense of working people. Under free trade agreements, companies are given far more leeway to skirt environmental and public health protections and to outsource jobs to countries where they can pay workers for less than the U.S. minimum wage. Here's how one member of the House of Representatives in 1991 criticized NAFTA.
3: Mr. Speaker, this coming Monday in Vermont, a coalition of groups representing organized labor and our working people, our farming community, and our environmental organizations We'll be be coming together to determine the best way that we can stop the fast-track agreement with Mexico that the President is proposing, an agreement that will be a disaster for working people, for our farmers, and for the environment in general. Our nation, and this is an untold secret, is becoming a poorer and poorer nation. Our working people in the last 20 years have seen a significant decline in their standard of living because our nation has turned from a manufacturing economy into a service industry economy, which is paying our workers extremely low wages. One of the reasons that our standard of living is declining is that major American corporations like General Motors, General Electric, and many others have thrown hundreds of thousands of American workers out on the street as they run to Mexico and to Asia to hire desperate workers there and pay them starvation wages. We do not need a fast-track agreement. We need a new industrial policy which provides good-paying jobs for our workers. Thank you.
0: So the congressman, now senator, of course, was right. NAFTA put the U.S. on a fast-track to a massive trade deficit with serious ramifications for American workers. In 2014, on the 20th anniversary of NAFTA, the Economic Policy Institute estimated that NAFTA had cost nearly 700,000 American jobs. As EPI founder Jeff Foe put it, NAFTA granted corporations extraordinary legal protections against national labor and environmental laws that they could claim threaten future profits. At the same time, workers and unions were denied the legal status needed to defend themselves in these new cross-border jurisdictions. As a result, the bargaining positions of U.S. workers, union and non-union were severely undercut. As soon as NAFTA became law, corporate managers began using the threat to move elsewhere in order to force U.S. workers to work longer and harder for less. Threatening employees with outsourcing is now standard practice in American business. So it should really come as little surprise that by embracing NAFTA and subsequent free trade agreements, Bill Clinton and other Democrats laid the ground to lose a significant part of their base. In fact, a recent study by a team of researchers over at Princeton and Yale confirms this. The researchers looked at a number of historically Democratic counties that lost manufacturing jobs due to NAFTA in the 1990s and found that by the year 2000, a majority of voters in these former Democratic strongholds were casting ballots for Republicans. They write voters in the places most impacted by NAFTA and voters who who free trade left the Democratic Party in large numbers, beginning around the time of NAFTA's debate and implementation. Now, of course, none of this means that Republicans actually care about American workers or would have implemented less disastrous trade policies. After all, Reagan, George H.W. Bush, George W. Bush, and most congressional Republicans from the 1980s through to today have also supported or pushed to expand free trade agreements. The problem is that when Democrats go along with right wing pro business policies like free trade and deregulation, voters rightly see it as a betrayal. Here's how journalist Chris Hedges explained it in an interview with Crystal Ball on Rising a few years ago.
4: There was a moment when the Democratic Party watched out for the interests of working men and women.
0: When did Uh, that go wrong?
4: Clinton, Clinton, Uh, NAFTA. So for instance, I was in Anderson, Indiana, and what was fascinating is that all these old UAW workers voted for Sanders, Mm -hmm. but in the presidential election they voted for Trump. They were never going to vote for Clinton because 25,000 good union jobs, benefits, pensions, people could make 25, 30, $40 an hour. Uh, buy their own homes, send their kids to college, all of that was destroyed. Anderson, like most deindustrialized centers, is a wasteland. With all of the attendant problems that come with that, uh, with alcoholism and opioid addiction and domestic abuse, etc. Well, where did the jobs go? They went to Monterrey, Mexico, where GM is paying workers $3 an hour without them.
0: So to sum up, it actually makes a weird kind of sense that so much of the American public continues to say that they trust Republicans more than Democrats on the economy. After all, you kind of know what you're getting into with Republicans' economic policies. They make no secret whatsoever that they want to grow the economy pretty much exclusively by slashing taxes and deregulating business so corporations can rake in more profit. Now, Democrats, on the other hand, so frequently come off as inconsistent or muddled or just downright duplicitous in their economic policies because they're constantly trying to toggle between satisfying capitalists, growing the professional stratum of their base and still appeal to unions and workers. It's no wonder then that they struggle to get a majority of workers to trust them to skillfully steer the economy. Finally, lest you think that voters who don't trust Democrats on the economy are simply brainwashed by neoliberal ideology or by right-wing media, consider this. When the most recent post-ABC poll asked people who they thought was responsible for inflation, 68% of respondents, aka a supermajority, blamed corporations trying to increase profits. What's more is that last year, according to Reuters, 7 out of 10 Democrats and even 40% of Republicans agreed that trickle-down economic policies had failed. That doesn't really sound like the opinion of neoliberal ideologues. So what I'm getting at is this in our current political climate, addressing the economy should be a slam dunk for any political party that sincerely prioritizes jobs, wages and workers, fights corporate power and the billionaire class, and will undertake serious efforts to reverse disastrous free trade policies. But the problem, as always, is that the Democratic Party just doesn't have a coherent answer because the Democrats, like the Republicans, are captured by the rich. All right. Well, unfortunately, I don't think this problem will be disappearing anytime soon, so I'm sure I'll have more to say on it in the future. Uh, but I think it's the moment that you've all been waiting for. It's our special interview with Adolf Reed. As I mentioned earlier, Ariella and Kale uh, were able to sit down with Adolf in person in New York, and we shot and edited this, uh, this interview professionally. So please enjoy, and um, I'll be back after the interview.
5: Hi, welcome to The Jackbin Show. I'm Ariella Thornhill, and today we are joined by Adolf Reed, author of The South, Jim Crow, and its Afterlives. Hi, Adolf.
6: Hey, how you doing? Good. Yeah, It's great to see you live.
5: Yeah, this is yeah. kind of crazy, but I'm really <laughs> glad that we get to talk about this book in person. because. Well, well, good, me too. Yeah, yeah, there's so much in the book. I wanted to start by talking about your strategy in grounding your analysis in anecdotes from your own life Ah, okay well
6: yeah it's it it's almost dishonest to call it a strategy but it is strategic Mm -hmm. right i mean like i've said a number of times like i just started writing with no goal in mind and not even really an audience um but um but the the first version of the text which was much shorter combined um sort of you know straightforward political and historical account with Vignettes um, that basically took uh, took off from from moments in my own experience that I thought would be helpful for shining light onto broader cultural, political, economic dynamics. So, so I did that, and, and I think that that's just kind of the way that my mind works work, works about that sort of stuff, anyway. And um, that's that's frankly one of the things that had drawn me and, and other people like um, um, like 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 the UN's and others. Uh, some of Ron too um to to the Frankfurt School is like the idea of sort of finding the logic of capitalism in in, in cellular examination of facets of everyday life. So.
5: Yeah, I think it's really, really effective in the book because it takes some of the lack of specificity that the contemporary liberal view of Jim Crow has, right, Mm -hmm. where it's like a lot of angry white people and bad feelings propping up this system, and it complicates it, and it complicates it in a way that seems very common sense to read it. When you read about these different kinds of community formations and networks, men getting together to work on a car, crossing Mm -hmm. the color line to do that, or listen to a baseball game together, you start to see that the sort of spectacular narrative that we have of that moment in time was actually a really complicated fabric of different individual calculations about how to conform to a system of segregation that was imposed on everyone white and black alike.
6: Right. Absolutely. And like that was the precise um, source of the book. Right. Um, And I mentioned this, too, but I have a couple of good good friends who uh, around the end of the last century, like the three of us, often enough, round round robin or all together, would remark on the fact that when our general age cohort was gone, there wouldn't be anybody else around anymore who had that kind of textured understanding and therefore all all there would be. It is this kind of stuff that you just, uh, you know, described and, and, and that not only doesn't you know, make, make sense as a way to understand what the Jim Crow world was. And I mean, who wants to preserve a memory of the Jim Crow world anyway. Right. But it, but it's just a bad way to, to understand history, to understand how we got from there, where, wherever there was to here, wherever here is. And I mean, a parallel, um, that's, that's probably overstating it to call it frustration, but like every year around Martin Luther King's birthday, right. You know, wherever you're living, you know, somebody from the local TV station is going to go to the middle school, grade school, high school, and ask kids, what what you know about Martin Luther King. And without regard to race, gender, age, whatever, like they all say some version of a long time ago, people, you know didn't have any freedom and then martin luther king came came and brought him freedom and when we think about how credentialed people think about um you know the history of black americans in or, or of black people like in the us it's like um it, a, a um a narrative of oppression porn right that mm-hmm. begins with slavery which is just oppression porn Mm -hmm. And then what follows slavery is what's often described as having been worse than slavery. So like sharecropping Jim Crow, or more um, oppression porn, right? And that doesn't help you understand how we got to where we are, or well, well, there's no history like in that history. Mm
7: -hmm.
6: Um, And another facet of it is is that if, that, um, if what was bad about the past, was um, was the sadistic excesses? Then that leaves open the possibility that slavery, minus the the sadistic excesses, it wouldn't have been so bad, mm-hmm. right? And to ray my son uh, had um, what, what once had a student uh, a number of years ago uh, in his African American history class, who 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 was quite confused about. Um, Why planters, you know, didn't want either slaves or sharecroppers to be educated? Because a student, black student, who was a business major, said, "Well, but it just seems like if if he'd let them enhance their human capital, then they could have been more productive as (laughs) workers, and it would have been better for him." So, like, this is the world that we're living in now. Yeah. So anyway, like, I know I went um, what, but my grandmother used to describe as going all around. Robin Hood's barn (laughs) with that answer but
5: no I think you make a a really good point there because that lack of specificity is something that you call out several times in the book Mm -hmm. but you call it out on both sides and I don't think people give you proper shrift for that like you're often portrayed as a kind of critic of the liberal Mm
7: -hmm. or
5: progressive left right but you make it very clear that the fiction of what slavery was, the fiction of white supremacy was a fiction for whites in the South Uh that them propping it up as this enduring system that, you know, started with slavery and lasted and needs to be reclaimed. That fiction was unstable. Right. Jim Crow proved it was unstable. Right. And there's a similar kind of ideological falsehood operating with the liberal fiction about, you know, the oppression porn version Mm -hmm. of racism in America. So what do you think is the issue with the liberal side more clearly? The issue with the Republican side, we know, right? Right. We don't want to prop up the idea that there was a kind of enduring white supremacy on the basis of black inferiority and the South will rise again, et cetera. But Afro-pessimism in its current iteration does something similar. It imagines a timelessness to racism.
6: Yeah, Afro-pessimism is like Madison Grant and Charles Murray dipped in chocolate, <laughs> right? And that's all it is, right? It's the same argument, right? Yeah. That 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 race drives the world and has always driven the world, even thousands of years before race was invented, right? Race was somehow driving the world. And, and like one thought I have about this is, is it, well, so like this is, first of all, like the ideology of people who always get enough to eat because there's a, mm-hmm. there's a kind of luxuriation in, um, um, in, 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 in a romanticized fantasy of suffering, right? Mm-hmm. right but we've always suffered, mm-hmm. right? That people whose immediate like material circumstances are not fully pacified, just don't have occasion or interest in indulging, right? So, so I mean, that's one thing. Well, I tell you, like, um, so there's one little scene early in the book that, that I know has caught a number of people's attention. But, you know, when my little cousin up near from Jersey and I went to uh, you know, went with my grandmother mm-hmm. to the zoo, like.
5: So in that story in the book, just mm-hmm. for our audience who hasn't heard it, you go to the zoo with your cousin and there's a pony ride. Right. I mean, every kid would want to ride a pony.
6: And, and, and at that point, we were in, like, full like there's a picture someplace of the two of us together in my grandparents driveway
5: Mm -hmm.
6: with me me with the dale uh the roy rogers suit Mm -hmm. with with my pistol and her with the dale evans suit with her pistol so we were definitely yeah in full flood (laughs) wow i want to what i get to ride a pony moment right especially as two big city kids yeah don't see animals as well
5: so you showed up and then right. it was segregated. Only right. white kids could ride the pony. Right.
6: So until I was an adult, like I thought of this as as, as, as an illustration of what a bad person, you know, the guy who wouldn't let us ride mm-hmm. the ponies was. But then as I started to think about it, like we really don't even have to think of him as somebody who was committed to Jim Crow. But mm-hmm. right? Like he might have been. He might not have been. He might have been somebody who, who was committed to keeping his job, yeah.
7: right?
6: Uh, but, and that gets us to what the liberals or what the problem is with the way the liberals want to perceive this. Because for them, it's good people and bad people, people with good attitudes and people with bad, bad attitudes. And what they have done consistently, right, about race uh, or racial inequality Um is disconnected from political economy.
5: Right?
6: Mm-hmm. Um, so, and that's what their, their deal is.
5: And you said that at the time you felt offended, mm-hmm. you know, and it is humiliating to be denied something. Well, to be honest, I don't see.
6: Uh, um, yeah. Yeah. My cousin Gwen may have had like a, well, like a more, I mean, sophisticated sense, but, but I doubt it. Uh, like for me, at least the things like that, that happened um yeah i just cried because i couldn't get to ride the pony yeah right and another story in that same part of the book with my grandmother is like the Algiers fairy
5: mm-hmm. right by the way i love your grandmother i oh, she was reading a reading about of work, her i'm telling
6: you and, her, <laughs> and she had a slogan like love many and trust a few but always paddle your own canoe oh, so, uh,
5: yeah. yeah you gotta <laughs> write these down that's the next book well, so the story is you're on the Algiers Ferry, which I've right. written actually with my kids now. Right, yeah, you know, I'm sure post you have. Jim Crow, but yep. um, there was a chicken wire fence, right? and you and your grandmother and your cousin, is that right? Oh, no, just me and my just grandmother. Just you and your grandmother had to yeah. sit behind the fence.
6: Yeah, uh, yeah. somebody asked me a couple of days ago, or last interview or whatever, whether you know, I was conscious that the people on the other side of the chicken wire were all white, and the fact is that I wasn't. Right, it but but like it just didn't register at that point. I was like five or six, and 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 again, like I'm coming into and going out of um, the regime, basically. So, Mm -hmm. so, so part of learning the protocol is learning race difference, Mm
7: -hmm.
6: right? Also, and, and I mean, normally for people who who are sort of born into it, it's kind of like being Catholic, right? You're just born into it and you just sort of know that's who you are and that's what it is. Mm -hmm. But, but it's not even a matter of, you know, some claim about not seeing race, whatever that means, but it's true. Like um, 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 Barbara Fields used to do this thing in her classes at at, at Columbia where she'd ask students how many people were sitting next to somebody of the same race. Mm-hmm. And then she'd ask them how many people are sitting next to somebody who who looks just like you And her point is that 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 there are gazillions of ways that human beings vary
7: mm-hmm.
6: phenotypically, right uh, and but uh, but only some of them get picked up uh, to mark something called uh, the quasi species difference of of race and her point was always to show that those markers were were determined by political economic processes and dynamics, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but it feels to me like we've lost so much ground like on all those fronts. I mean, um, and I'll say this too, I mean, one, so so I got into um, race as a research area. I mean, like race, science, mm-hmm. or race from the standpoint of history of ideologies, because around the turn of the century, around the turn of this century, uh, Ward Connerly, who was like a um, a douchebag black du- douchebag from so- South Louisiana who moved to California and was just a nasty piece of work, he had first sponsored, um, um, I think it was an immigration restriction ballot initiative, and then he came back and did this thing. And he called it the California Civil Rights Initiative, which would have prohibited the state from keeping records by by race, mm-hmm. right? Uh, but, but I was reading about it one day and learned that he, he had two exceptions for this prohibition. One was criminal justice, and the other was medical research. And I thought, well, you couldn't imagine being more ass-backward, right? Mm-hmm. So I determined I was going to write an op-ed piece for one of the California papers. But before I did.
5: What year was this?
6: Uh, this must have been around 99 or 2000, 2001, something like that. But But before I did, I thought, well, I'll go to the opposition group's website to see what position they're taking because I don't want to you know, get in the way.
7: Mm-hmm.
6: And I was stunned to find out that on the public health button page, whatever, um, they, the opposition was actually arguing that the CCRI would make it impossible to track diseases that only we get, right? mm-hmm. we, we, we as people of color. So i thought okay well shit what can i do like i can't write the op-ed piece now they're also as i understand it wrong in, in the way that they're portraying what this bill would do but but even if they're right they're right in a terrible way right mm-hmm. because because they're opening the door for 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 the return of racial medicine and as you know you've seen this again about the COVID stuff yeah and why are people so oblivious to, to the impact of what they're actually doing
5: so how did it feel to kind of look back at your life after coming to some of these conclusions about race and racial ideology huh. later?
6: Well, that's an interesting question. Um, and and I'm not sure I have an answer, which may be weird. Uh, <laughs> at one point in the 90s, when this little cluster of us uh, sort of, you know, I don't know, left, black, anti um essentialist right academics was starting to congeal as a cabal
5: mm-hmm. right um, you're verifying it's a cabal
6: <laughs> <laughs> i'm out of it yeah uh but um yeah ken ken warren who of course like is one of them uh and we had like a two-man seminar that we did for I mean, almost the whole time that i lived in chicago at jimmy's Woodlawn Tap in Hyde Park, University of Chicago. And we were talking in, in the bar one night, um, um, and it just occurred to us both that most of the people in this circle of ours were either people who, were, who had been raised as the military brats
7: mm-hmm.
6: or academic brats.
7: Mm-hmm.
6: And it made sense, because, it, because if you move around a lot, that, then you learn in, intuitively, right, that, the, um, that, 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 that the idea of a racial essence is bullshit. Right? Mm-hmm. So, and then, like, for some of us, like you stir in that phenotypic mess down, down in South Louisiana. And that also kind of predisposes you to understand that this whole whole thing is fake, fake, fake in some way. So I don't know. I mean, um, insofar as there was a revelation for me that came came along, uh, or that came through the process of writing, um, it it was that that bizarre new what I mean new agey incoherent uh, sensation that that I described in the intro.
7: Mm-hmm.
6: Um, what what was actually going on there? Uh, and it wasn't anything like Brigadoon. It was like um, th- um, a distinction between a, a way of seeing what were vestiges of of, of earlier forms of interaction um, as being just that and not as, you know, continuations of anything.
5: Yeah, I think it's interesting that throughout the book, there are these anecdotes that seem kind of boldly as relics of Jim Crow, mm-hmm. but the dominant narrative these days is like nothing has changed. Right. There's this enduring form. Right. What are the stakes for you in making it very, very clear what has changed and what has not changed? Oh,
6: okay. Well, first of all, like as a scholar, right, I'm just committed to getting the story straight, right? And so that's one thing. And I just said to somebody a few days ago that that w- w- that whenever I hear the nothing has changed line. My impulse is that I wish I could, like, yeah, but I wish I had a back machine
7: mm-hmm. and
6: could take the utterer and, and just and drop him or her in the Mississippi Delta in 1950 for about six weeks, then I come back and pick him up.
7: Mm-hmm.
6: So that's part of it. A- and part of the problem is that that uh, assertion just um, betrays the extent to which people don't pay attention to to, to the substance of the history, but are. But get captured by uh, the freeze frame photos, right? I mean, speaking of uh, you know, Ava DuVernay's Selma. Mm-hmm. Um, but the most important thing, right? Like right beyond my pedantry, basically, is that we can't get a handle on 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 what current black politics is, or current race and politics, or the nexus of race and politics are, without understanding what undergirded that history what was discreet about it right what what forces political economic forces brought it into existence why and then and therefore then where jim crow fits in the in an account of the evolution of american capitalism right over the last 300 years
5: so where do you think it fits because there have been these attempts to kind of rework the story of the birth of america to be slavery it's the original sin the origin of every issue past present future Yes. um to me i saw parallels between that narrative and the republican narrative of white supremacy which also Mm -hmm. imagines an enduring white race that's existed forever Um, but aside from fighting it on that end what What are the particularities we need to pull out about how Jim Crow shaped the America that we're in today Mm -hmm. and how we actually do combat racism and economic injustice?
7: Okay.
6: well, see, I'm not sure that our fight is with something called racism in the first place. Right. I mean, I think. And that's another um, front on which I think we've lost badly over the last 50 years. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Yeah. I mean, will you
5: elaborate on that?
6: Sure. Uh, Well, I mean, I've said this in like some places before, but uh, a couple of years before I retired, I taught um, a grad seminar uh, in, in Black American political thought. And, and it was really more of a bibliography course than it was anything else. The readings were massive. And students, um, you know, led the discussions every week. And one, one, one week, a first-year student, uh, and this was in, I think, fall semester, so it was like a first-semester grad student who was mm-hmm. a political theory type. Uh, w- was a leading discussion uh, uh, around the massive readings uh, uh, between the mid-30s and the mid-40s. And it's like stuff from Ralph Bunch and Albus C. Cox and a bunch of other people. And 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 she began her uh, comments by saying, the thing that really surprised her, was, was that nobody talked about the need to combat racism.
7: Mm-hmm.
6: Right? They were all fighting for concrete stuff and against Concrete stuff. Mm-hmm. They were debating about specific visions of social organization, mm-hmm. and they knew there was racism out there, right? But racism wasn't the enemy; it was institutions.
7: Mm-hmm.
6: And, and when you think about the struggle against racism, it, it's a uh, it, it's like first cousin to to anti terrorism, right? Because it's nothing concrete, like it doesn't live any place,
7: mm-hmm.
6: right? Uh, there's no state that it's connected to. And the beauty of it is that y- you can never defeat it permanently. So like um, if you're a racial justice warrior, then you basically got a job job for life, right? Um, mm-hmm. And that's the thing I don't like about how we have come to talk about racism as the source of of empirical of empirically observable inequalities and and this has been a problem for people who want to do that too and that's why they've concocted modifiers right um to 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 support a claim that it's not that there's something more to racism than 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 an attitude or a disposition Mm -hmm. so so it's institutional which has its own history and, and 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 kind of a concrete programmatic history, but you know, stuff like structural racism or systemic racism. And you know from the way that people talk about it, that there's nothing there uh, except the way that it makes them feel to say it. Yeah. Right.
5: Attaching systemic seems right really legit. Oh and, yeah. Yeah. Well,
6: Keeping it real. Right. Yeah, but
5: they couldn't define what systemic racism is. No, I think good. it's interesting in light of, you know, the content of your book, which is literally saying this is what segregation looked like on the Uh ground. And that in each instance of segregation, there were ambiguities. Uh Can you give an example from the book where, you know, you, you included it to illustrate that kind of concept.
6: Uh, Yeah. I think the neighborhood stuff kind of does that too. Right. Uh, um, Fairly early. Right. I mean, so like in, um, and like this, yeah, I like this one too, too, because it's another one that, that that helps to show how stupid I was about some stuff for so long <laughs> uh, but um, so in older southern cities and it's not just New Orleans but it's it's like this in Charleston a bunch of other places too um, residential segregation wasn't a thing
7: um, mm-hmm.
6: un- until the 20th century right yeah Uh, You have
5: a line that neighborhoods were invented to kind of support a concept of the way that we ought to be living together and who we ought to be living with. Correct.
6: Right. Uh, Right. Absolutely. And it's not quite the same. Well, it kind of was the same in the North and the Midwest where suburbanization happened earlier. Mm -hmm. Like in Chicago, for instance, like the big flood to the suburbs came with, 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 with improvement of streetcar technology, but also... With the Haymarket Riot, which just sort of drove the bourgeoisie, uh, you know, up the lake because they were afraid the workers were going to kill them and drink their eyeball fluid. <laughs> but when planned development came to the South, Baltimore on, on, on down, like it came, came at a historically specific moment when the urban planning was becoming a thing, when the idea of of of, of a planned, um. Planned living, right, um, was what was beginning to get progress or appeal from capital or to capital P progressives, but also um, at the height or crest at least of um, anti-immigrant anxiety. Uh, and, and, and especially in the South after, um, you know, defeat of the populist insurgency where um, upper status people felt like a cultural need on a daily basis to re- reassert, um, their primacy in the social order, and and to distance themselves from presumed social inferiors, right? And Linthead is as much a racial category as Kuhn, basically. Mm-hmm. So it's in this period that you begin to see these class and race um, homogeneous communities being planned, Right. And it's not because, and, 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 and I've learned that this is another distinction that a lot of people have some difficulty taking in. But it's because my argument isn't that people didn't think about racial hierarchy. No, it's that people didn't think about where you live as, as a domain for expressing your place within the racial hierarchy, right? Mm-hmm. And that took the emergence of the real estate industry and the idea of the neighborhood now what made me feel especially stupid about this was that this didn't crystallize in my head until I started teaching Thomas Hancett's book on on Charlotte North Carolina from 1900 to 1975 and Hancett lays out how how it happened in 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 Charlotte and then it, and then all of a sudden it hit me like you, you you can think about the dates of the neighborhoods right uh, that had the reputation for being you know white and it's like uh, you know mainly after world, world war one I. I mean so
7: mm-hmm.
6: so people find themselves in these neighborhoods and there's a a natural disposition to be um casually uh or uh, convivial right at the quotidian level right
7: mm-hmm.
6: talking over the fence or whatever um, mm-hmm. and um and the way that, um, and I write about this, I mean, how people, whites from the neighborhood who were friendly, you know, within the boundaries that everybody accepted, right? Uh, um, who, when you would encounter them someplace up, you know, outside the neighborhood, and 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 experiences snub most often. Um, that. And like this is, and, 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 and understanding that I grew into, like a kid wouldn't appreciate this anyway. Uh, and by kid, I mean through, through teenage or through mm-hmm. the high period of the Civil Rights Movement, frankly, that like they were try- trying to navigate this thing too, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and I mean, people tend not to think that the order was imposed
5: mm-hmm.
6: on, on people. Right. Yeah. They I, think
5: it was born of their own feelings. And right. so it was natural, like a fish in water. Right. But actually everybody, and your book shows this really acutely, everybody had to kind of negotiate against it constantly. Right. Like you have the story of the white couple that owned a shop who kind of sat you down after you stole a bag of potato right. chips. Right. I hope you've stopped that by the way. Oh yeah.
6: I did. <laughs> oh, Oh, and, look, look, all I could think about was Angola,
7: Angola, Angola. <laughs>
5: Yeah, I mean, there is something also important, I think, to unpack there, which is that in this reworking of American history around contemporary liberal narratives about race, Mm -hmm. there are other fictions that emerge around prison, incarceration, segregation of neighborhoods, all of these things. For you, when you were in that moment as a kid, you did something every kid does, tried Mm -hmm. to steal a snack. Right, but the full weight of of the realization that actually there was a system in which you did not have complete citizenship, mm-hmm. would not be completely respected and didn't right. have the rights of others, that hit right. you in that moment yep. stealing yep. a bag of chips.
6: Oh no, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. And I don't know if I mentioned this in a book, but like like I took the bus home from school like in a lot of different routes uh and, and a one of them uh driving uh, riding on the tulane bus down to tulane avenue you, you go right past the courthouse at at broad and tulane and and the parish prisoners right next to it and emblazoned on the front of the courthouse it courthouse is the impartial administration of justice is the foundation of liberty and every time i rode past that i just wanted to kill
7: somebody yeah right
6: because uh, Hypocrisy, uh, God, my God! But uh, and so the other thing about uh, the the um, uh, this sensibility that that like whites just kind of um, or uh, you know Jim Crow just kind of came out of the white psyche or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, also, when I was a kid, like my dad sa- said this very often. I can but I can't count the times I can remember him saying it, but you know the orthodoxy in the fifties, in particular. Was that um, Jim Crow and lynching and stuff were the product of uh, of the backward racist white working class, which was empowered right after the populist movement.
7: Mm-hmm.
6: And my father would always say, often enough, with a bottle of a of a Miller High Life in his hand, uh, "Gee, isn't it? That's really weird, isn't it?" I mean, then you think that. That that if the white working class came to power, that 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 they'd want to get something for themselves, or that they want to get something besides just being nasty to black people, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so 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 I grew up with that understanding too. But
5: you know, you talk about these anecdotes from when Jim Crow is kind of breaking down, and there's mm-hmm. this place between the transition of one system to another
7: mm-hmm.
5: where the ambiguity makes the tension seem more acute. Right. Yeah. Um, do you think that that made a kind of, I don't know, do, do you think that that made some parts of the white population in the South cling to or become more committed to the ideology of segregation mm. as it started to fade away?
6: Uh, well, yeah, in one sense it did, right? Because of fading away what was over a couple of decades. Uh, and that And the intense um violence against uh, i mean civil rights workers yeah right is one illustration of that um, You know, the case of that old guy like in Fayetteville north yeah. carolina hmm. was
5: shoulder checked you right yeah you
6: know, i'm not embarrassed about my reaction right i'm not proud of it right uh if if i had if he had continued and i'd beaten him down like an alcove i still wouldn't have been embarrassed by it right mm-hmm. uh because because I felt then and I feel now in retrospect that if he missed it that much, then he, he must've been a guy who really deserved the ass kicking. Yeah. The imagine guy.
5: what he did when it was right. fully sanctioned right. and expected. Right.
6: And frankly, it took me a long time to kind of get, get away from that attitude.
5: Mm-hmm.
6: Um, um, frankly may have took, or, or, or it may have taken leaving the region, but, <laughs> <laughs> and we getting older, but um so there's that, right? I mean, people um, clung to it, and and at the same time, I mean, I recall my dad talking about this too. Is that that um, you know, the three um, racists who the, whom the Archbishop um, excommunicated in in, in in 1962. My dad who was an atheist. Just kept saying, "Well, look, like the church has been telling," and the Gallo woman was the big villain
7: mm-hmm.
6: but but he said yeah like the church has been telling her like all her life that I mean, segregation was God's God's law or whatever and now they're telling her that's not and I mean, you know um
5: how she's supposed to yeah <laughs> react to
7: that yeah right
6: and and then people would do stuff like for instance um when you sat down next to somebody on the bus even years after uh often enough a white person would jump up right mm-hmm. and and what i always found kind of funny was like because you really do need a program to figure out who's supposed to be what down there mm-hmm. a couple of times i sat down to somebody i just assumed was safe because i'm not looking to mm-hmm. draw look, look yeah, um, as a teenager the last thing you want to do is draw attention to yourself
5: and bother, yeah right yeah
6: and somebody who i assumed to be close enough to black for it not to be an issue would pop up mm-hmm. uh, so there were things like that right yeah that, that uh, persisted
5: where the system leaves and it's structured interactions in a certain way. And then right. in the absence of it, people really don't know where they fall. Right. That's right. Yeah. Right. Can you talk about the, what was it called? Triracial.
7: Oh, see, I think
5: there are right. interesting tidbits about this in the book right. in, on the one hand, you have this movement for economic sovereignty coming out of, you know, certain black communities mm-hmm. and, It's very clear that that's a reaction to Jim Crow. Right. And that a move to create a separate black economy while short-sighted and ignorant of the fact that you couldn't sustain it without, like, rights from the state. Right was still a kind of way of trying to subvert Jim Crow, mm-hmm. but tacitly an assumption that Jim Crow was forever, right?
7: right. No, that's right.
5: And same, I, I think, with the kind of tri, tri-racial, be declared. Yeah, yeah. yeah, right. Yeah, can you talk about that community and and give us a description for the, the audience? Yeah,
6: well, yeah, sure. I mean, there was, what, as a general phenomenon or just a Hallowa?
5: Yeah, um, talk about the Hallowa because you focus on them in yeah. your in your book.
6: The one thing in the book that has led me to sweat being come after, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, Is that there's a woman who writes for the Washington Post, who is active as a Halibaz Saponi. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I didn't know anything about the Saponi back in the day. Uh, And I'm assuming that this is just an alliance that got formed to kind of, kind of to legitimize everybody's race claim, basically. Mm -hmm. but my understanding of the Halawa, and like this was like I learned about this not long after I got to North Carolina, in a section of the state uh, from like Warrington, a town called Ahoski, which was ground zero. There's what there's what phenotypically looks like a or seems to be a big mixed race population,
7: mm-hmm.
6: right? Big by you know North Carolina standards or whatever. Um, And the story about the Halawa is at some point uh, in or after World War II, an element of this um, mixed-race population uh, um, decided that they weren't Black or were tired of being Black, and Lord knows anybody could could be be tired
7: of that, right?
6: And there's a Lumbee population there, there, too. So they decided to create a Native American identity for themselves. And from what I understand from from people with direct connections to it, I have a friend uh, whose um, who's, who's own family split uh, right over this, like her father and well, one or two of his brothers stopped speaking to each other. So wow. I know it's not an urban legend. So from what I understand like the early, some of the early um, expressions of the Native American identity or and this wouldn't surprise this wouldn't be surprising either, but we're naive stuff like mm-hmm. um, so there was in in Oxford for instance there was a section of the town called the stronghold after Cochise right from the TV show right so mm-hmm. uh, but the thing is that they are inauthentic um, only if you believe in authenticity
5: yeah exactly
7: right
6: and if you don't believe in authenticity. Well, there's no problem. Right. Yeah. Right. I mean, you are what you say you are. Mm-hmm. Uh, or as my son said, like in his up- updating of uh, Du Bois's thing about a black man being someone who must ride Jim, Jim, Jim Crow in Georgia. Well, that you are what the police. think you. are.
5: Mm-hmm.
6: Uh, but, but anyway,
5: Oftentimes, society is the judge of authenticity, not individuals. I do think right. there's a move to switch it where it's like you decide your authenticity. Oh, yeah, and I know. And that's a right. whole other can of uh, worms. Yeah, uh, that's a whole other problem. Nowadays, you know, I do think there could be, depending on who you are, a critique of that community or uh-huh. reading into it. This kind of gets to the passing chapter. Like right. you're not being your authentic identity. You must have animosity. Again, race is all about animosity. Right. When, in fact, you point to all of these kind of quotidian examples of people wanting beignets so mm-hmm. getting yeah. your grandma to go right. in because she could pass right and it wasn't an assault on the black identity or a no. declaration of animosity it was a simple matter of the calculus of jim crow
6: right no absolutely yeah absolutely it's like a and i'm trying yeah i mean it's like and and accommodation that people make yeah right so it and from that perspective. It's not that different from the black doctor who buys a house in a neighborhood that's um you know not necessarily a white one but that's class insulated from from mm-hmm. you know working class black people right? yeah um, or, or from that perspective it's not that different from having jack and jill to put your kids in to make sure that they mm-hmm. ha- have class um, homogeneity right yeah and I mean, it was always kind of charged, but like I said, like my first encounter with the passing like phenomena was this woman who, 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 who was kind of, you know, in, intriguingly glamorous and, and sort of big in her gestures and bangles and stuff as I recall, but I was a really little kid, but like she, she, she didn't seem to think that she was hiding anything from her black, Friends and family, like, mm-hmm. and okay, granted, this is like in that Creole world where,
5: yeah, where
6: everybody's got a cousin who crosses over somewhere. Right?
5: Mm-hmm. Uh,
6: but the disjunction between how um, passing gets represented in in American high culture, mm-hmm. uh, you know, both the angst on the one side and 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 the ambiguity, and you know. Quadruple consciousness or whatever, on mm-hmm. on the other, and and the reality of it in, in a place where it's or in a setting where it's a comparatively common practice, it was just so striking. Like I didn't uh, originally intend to write about that. It's after mm. um, I think it's only after faith faith trials started to push me a little bit that I and and and, and I wrote about the triracial isolates, and it just seemed mm-hmm. like that's a from the tri-racial isolates to like the immigrants who, who um, get here don't don't come.
7: Mm-hmm.
6: Frank Wibbleson and notwithstanding, uh, don't don't come with a sense of anti-blackness or a sense of race for that matter. Get here, you figure out you're on the margins of the political economy, and you figure out what the rules are. And the one thing you know is that well, I may not be able to be white, but I sure got to figure out a way not to be black. Right? Yeah and again that makes sense right but it's not you know somebody you want to give you know the legion of honor medal to right sure right but it makes sense what people do
5: and there's a you know a disingenuous kind of way of remaking that about sentiment about the sentiment mm-hmm. of those people right but actually the sentiment wouldn't be possible if the rules of the game were different right if the That's rules right. of the game had changed then the sentiment would have changed too it, And I think your book does a really good job of making it clear how this story is being written from the contemporary perspective backwards, Mm -hmm. right? Where the contemporary perspective is being imposed on a lot of these people. And when you're saying, this is what I lived, this is what I saw, here's how ideology works. It actually makes it clear that the real engine of racism wasn't the day-to-day feelings that people had right it was a system that required them to, to behave differently towards a set of second-class citizens
6: right that's it yeah. yeah and you put your finger on something else very important which is um, you know the tendency to read the past from the standpoint of the present shortly after my father died i was out in Fayetteville, arkansas where he lived mm-hmm. you know getting his affairs together and um, and at some point, I wanted to you know go see a movie or something and and I had friends there who were still very good friends um and Cold Mountain had just come out. I know anything about it um I knew that that it had Nicole Kidman in it, which was one reason not to see it uh, <laughs> but but anyway, so before I saw it, I read a review or I read an essay by. Manola Dargis, when she was still at the LA Times. And it was really smart, it was on that and some other period films, but it really struck me about it, what most struck me about it was her, uh, What well, was the point she made that the only people who pay attention to historical accuracy now are the prop makers and the set designers, mm. right? So like the restoration hardware, right, stuff, mm-hmm. is, is all like 1860. But the sensibilities, the dialogue, uh, what well, the moral compass is, is like, pure contemporary, yeah, ne- neoliberalism, yep, right. And to me, like that's that that's that that's a point where where art meets meets fascism, and 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 I, mean, I understand that there are you know much more mundane dynamics driving this, right? Um, um at the props of the star of the show, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, and that partly has to do with like international markets and whatnot. But, but, but that sensibility has also come to dominate how people who get paid, right? And sometimes handsomely with really nice working conditions compared to how the vast majority of Americans work today to think about and write about the past, do it too. Yeah. Right. So back in the days when I developed my rep as as the fire brand or whatever, that's the kind of stuff that I was reacting against
7: mm-hmm.
6: that. And so, I mean, here's a like I said, I didn't want to talk too much about my autobiographical stuff. But I'll say this. Like after. Ronald Reagan was elected the first time and um, we and people got to see that he wasn't another version of Nixon. Who talked it and did something else that he was serious, and they had like a revolutionary program. My my reaction um, was, well, well, okay, I need to make common cause with 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 the neoliberal Democrats. So I tried to do that through most of the eighties, right? And then like the underclass stuff hit. Now Ken Auletta had published a five-part, I think. Uh, piece in the Atlantic, which has always been what it is, which which became a book where he sort of la- lays out the underclass idea. Mm-hmm. But then the liberal academics pick it up. And and it's pretty clear wh- what what this thing was. And then even people who understood themselves to be leftists, you know, socialists. I mean, I can't tell you how many people got in my ass for criticizing William Julius Wilson unfairly because he said, Structurals, Mm
7: -hmm. right?
6: So by the end of the '80s and the beginning of the '90s, like I was just so pissed off about that stuff that I would just call it out. Mm -hmm. Um, And and my defense was when people get my ass for calling it out was well, well, okay, but but people who are pushing this this line, what which is really making up just so stories um, about what they reify from census tract level data as. Poor people's behavior,
7: mm-hmm.
6: right? I like get to beat up on and drag for the most vulnerable population in the society with impunity. Mm-hmm. And since those people can't get the microphone, then I figure one thing I can do is call out the game, right? Mm-hmm. But so, like, anyway, um, that experiment of trying to make common cause, like with liberals it survived sabra and Shatila just just barely just just barely it was one of those moments where i said well i'm sorry but like we had problems here i got to <laughs> deal with and then later i went to the camps actually um uh, um in early 2000s but um and it survived other stuff right um but like the underclass but what finally did it in was clinton mhm and yeah, I was just thinking about this not, not, not that long ago, but within um, four or five months of Clinton's inauguration, I was on the phone with Paul Wellstone, who had been a friend of mine since since college, um, and, and actually went to talk to him about um, the possibility of somebody running like a primary challenge against Clinton in 96. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's when I got involved with the Labor Party at the same, up at the same time
5: to get back to the book, you end on a really positive note. I think you do have a reputation for being a firebrand. But I think people also misunderstand your work, because for them, racial fiction is so taken for granted, Uh that they can't understand what your perspective is, or what you're fighting for. They think it's, you know, writ large dismissive of something that they believe in. But actually, what you say is, you know, you give all of these examples of the ways that people negotiated the segregationist order of Jim Crow. And then you said, for most people, it was unimaginable that in 15 years, it Uh would be gone. Right. So what do you take from that lesson? I think the book ends on a kind of optimistic note that Mm. Uh we don't know the future. And it's set against this contemporary ideology that we know the future, present and past, because certain concepts are so enduring that they will shape our history forever right so what do you think we should take from that you know the lesson of Jim Crow's failure
6: well yeah I think there is something optimistic there right I mean and even within or at the same moment that that it's that it would be tough to be um, I wouldn't say pessimistic Um, well yeah maybe I would it would be tough to be more pessimistic about the realities of our current moment than I am. Yeah. But both things are true at the same time. And see, this is – so the optimism is is ultimately like the open-endedness of history, right? Well, like when uh, – 1986 World Series. Okay. When the Mets w- were down to their last out mm-hmm. in the ninth inning, and they were going to lose to, God forbid, the Red Sox, which is like, that would be like, yep, I know from Maine, they I'm are not viewed.
5: A, I'm not a Red Sox fan. Right, I mean, differently. But I, but. Yeah, I will be attacked roundly for <laughs> <laughs> this video.
6: Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, but the idea of like losing, and and especially in Southern Connecticut, where the, where the sports market was at that point kind of split between Boston and, and New York. Mm-hmm. So the prospect of losing to the Red Sox was, was just horrendous. And we're all sitting there watching the game, crestfallen and the ball and, and, and the routine ground ball goes through the legs of the Red Sox first baseman and the Mets win, right? Once you put the ball in play, anything can happen, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and there are greater and lesser probabilities but that's not the way the probability works, right, in the world, right? Um, so that's the upside. Um, but see, the, the, the thing that's, that's frightened me um, for most of my adult life, right, um, Is and like I think this kind of sparked something in my head when I read um, Voltaire's Parable of the Good Brahmin in Candide when I was like a teenager. But but the idea that being oblivious can can be helpful just frightens the hell out of me because that just feels to me like like concession to like the ultimate despair, right? Uh, so so politically, I think I've got something a little more like a counterpuncher's, uh, but reflex, right? That that when you, you get hit, then the thing to do is to look around for a space that you can hit hit back at or try to find a crevice like in in the order that you can crawl into and start trying to
2: pry Mm -hmm. it open
6: and and to me that's what the optimism is because like i've often i often but i can't say have because i don't do it anymore said the students who would want to you know get into this kind of politics is well look like it's not like ngo work right you got to think about it like a major league baseball player that if you're successful three times out of 10, you go to the hall of fame, Mm -hmm. right? Because what, when you're trying to fight capitalism, you're going to lose a hell of a lot more than you're going to win. Yeah. So.
5: And I think if you said, you know, to a group of people, a group of liberals who are very invested in the idea that there's a kind of enduring racism, uh if you said there's an enduring racism that's been in America since its conception and potentially in the world, they'd be like, Uh yes, Absolutely. But if right. you said the civil rights movement abjectly failed and every black radical and, and ally of the cause also failed, nothing mm. has changed. They would be like, how can you say that? Right. Right. And it's funny because you get a lot of hate, but mm-hmm. you're saying, look at our victories, look mm-hmm. at them starkly, look at them right. realistically, right. look at the real political systems we are within. Look at the way we've changed them. Mm-hmm. I mean, what you've traced is the... Path of your life as it was affected by Black people gaining full citizenship in the country, however mm-hmm. imperfect yeah, right. it is expressed. Right, and I think that you know that feat shouldn't be underestimated.
6: No, I agree. I mean, and and, and it's kind of a weird, you know, almost, um, you know, almost like a schismogenesis, right, in the sense that. That, that 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 there are two contradictory seeming balls you need to hold hold in the air, or one needs to hold in the air at the same time. That's that's one of them for sure, right? I mean, um, and like I, but I think I mentioned this in the book too. Like when I'm out someplace now and see a, like an interracial group of people out, you know, just doing something, right? Right in a bowling league, or having lunch at TGI Fridays or whatever that I recall that this is something that could not have happened as late as 1960. Mm-hmm. And there were sequelae, right. That follow from having that, that kind of interaction, working in the same office together. And that doesn't mean that you, that, that it's brotherhood week or that you're mm-hmm. standing on the Hill, teaching everybody to sing in perfect harmony together. Right. But, 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 but there's something there that, that can enable, um, concerted behavior right that would that the whole point of Jim Crow was to preempt and I'll tell you like I don't say this in the book but when we started working in South Carolina in this ballot project in 2006 um we spent a lot of time working at flea markets which are like poor people's shopping centers Mm -hmm. malls basically and it was striking that how many um Current and former interracial unions you know, down down through the working class right uh, from stable working class down down to um, the bottom basically we encounter um and like what with the you know white grandmother who looks like she just stepped out of the uprising of thirty four <laughs> with, with our little black grandbaby mm-hmm. and the daughter has got 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 some other dude that she 's with and, 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 and yeah, I had a student at Penn in, um, in, in 2016, uh, you know, semester of the election, who um, we were talking one day, and she's from, you know, she's from the Mississippi Gulf Coast, and I thought, you know, I just assumed she was like, um, you know, a middle class, or the child of you know, middle class black, black professionals, mm-hmm. right? And down there, it turns out, she's what is what is nowadays called a biracial. Uh, and she was raised by her white mother's family father wasn 't much in the picture um the What were the mother's families at the is at the busted end of the working class mm-hmm. and she said that um that well while, while while they were driving her crazy around the trump stuff because they all loved lo- loved trump and and what i guess for the sake of keeping myself out of trouble now, I should call the N word mm-hmm. uh, peppered people's discourse that at the same time in her life, she had never felt anything except loved and protected and cherished by this family of hers. So as you know, this shit's complicated, mm-hmm. right? Uh, so why don't people want to accept the, the complicatedness of it? I think liberals don't by and large, because they're in- invested deeply in um, seeing themselves as morally superior to their f- friends, neighbors, family members, co workers, right? Because when you get down to it, the upper status liberals are the people who, apart from the really, really rich, live the most segregated, class class skewed lives in this country, mm-hmm. right? The schools, their workplaces, right? But right, uh, right their neighborhoods so so for them it's almost like there's almost like a psychological need for the west wing crowd to um to to have archie bunker out there to project all of their own or the um, emotional um expressions of their own material practices onto him right Mm. so that's one reason for the pocs um they the complicatedness is unacceptable because what has become over the last half half century right understood as black politics or for that matter um hispanic or latino politics or asian american politics is very much a class politics and a class politics that's crafted within um in the framework of ethnic pluralism Mm -hmm. right like in the u.s
5: and a natural authentic constituency that is pre-existing and not constructed
6: exactly right i mean that's exactly right
5: oh what you said reminded me of a controversy at little red schoolhouse which is around the corner from here where they had black students that were mostly there on scholarships and the kids were feeling weird being in there with like a bunch of other white kids Mm -hmm. so they put them all in the same home room group right
7: yeah and people were
5: like my kid doesn't have a black in their class now like, we paid good money for them to go here and learn to be tolerant. And wow. the black kid isn't even with them. And they literally, like, they started writing letters. I think a couple celebrities oh, wow. wrote letters being wow. like, give my kid a black kid to oh make them God. tolerant. Oh, oh,
6: my God. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, I got to find you a should be a South Park episode.
5: Yeah. Uh, some of it's, like, satire doesn't exist anymore. No, no it doesn't the last last question so you write the tendency to mistake superficial familiar imagery for actual continuity threatens to obscure how the presence differs most meaningly from the past Mm -hmm. and you similarly criticize people today using allegory to relate modern politics to the past Mm -hmm. what should we take from the past Uh, and what should we leave behind
6: okay um well yeah I'm not much into taking stuff from the past um what i yeah I mean, here's the way I approach it right that 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 i think the relation between past and present is what i've you know described like elsewhere as a generative one right so so that to make sense of 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 the present um can call for um kind of a deep dive into tensions, conflicts, um, and, and um, contending perspectives in, in the past, and how they get resolved through contestation. And and the terms on which they get resolved become like the terms of a present uh, that close off some, some ways of thinking, some options and open up others uh, in, in a way that can't be predicted. Right, but, but can only be worked out concretely right, through s- struggle and contestation. Um, and, then, and then that new present then becomes the sort of baseline for how people approach thinking or how people approach in interpreting the forces that are unfolding around them as, as they see them, right? And, and in that sense, I think the relation between the past and the present it is, or figuring out the relation between the past and the present um, may have to, or has to do ultimately with, with examining um, or close examination of the eddies of tension and, and conflict and perspective uh, that operated in the past, you know, get resolved um, to, uh, and then the process happens again. Yeah, it's something almost like coming to understand the present a little more clearly by getting a clearer picture of what its ancestral forms
5: Mm -hmm. were. So you're resisting allegory with anecdote. That's that's the book summary right there.
7: Totally. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. Well,
5: Adolf, thank you so much for joining us. The book is The South, Jim Crow and its Afterlives out from Verso Books. You can buy it directly from the publisher if you don't like Amazon. Very good. Thanks again for uh, coming over. This was a a great opportunity to dive into the material of the book.
6: Well, hey, thanks so much for having me. And I've had a lot of fun. Thanks again, guys.
0: All right. Uh, I hope you guys enjoyed that interview. Again, I just want to say thank you to our YouTube members and thanks to all of you guys for watching. Um, You you made this interview possible. Uh, Your support makes it possible for us to... Uh, do more interviews like this in person and um, shoot and edit professionally so thank you um, I teased this at the beginning of the show but I just want to repeat again that uh, we actually recorded uh, quite a lot of footage with Adolf Reed not just about the south but about you know a variety of other things as well and so some of that footage will be forthcoming in future projects so please stay tuned um, way, Jen, anything else for the record
2: <laughs> Everything that our audience sees is professionally shot and edited.
0: I'm so sorry. It's true. It's true. It's true. (laughs) It's true. You guys, I don't know if you know this, but Kale is like by trade a professional video editor and videographer. And I feel like that doesn't actually always like come through because you're like the for the live show, you're the producer who, like, sometimes pops on screen, like, right now, for instance, or to talk about Marxist theory. Like, I don't think the audience knows how talented you are, but Kale shot and edited this video, you guys, so. Uh,
2: I'm just somewhat, I feel somewhat overused and underused simultaneously these days. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. there'll be a lot more of this kind of stuff, I think, in the future. Where, um, yeah. So, stay tuned. We got a lot of good stuff coming.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, on that note, um, just want to give another shout out to the South. Uh, If you guys haven't gotten a chance to check it out yet, it's it's a really incredible book, um, as I'm sure you sort of picked up from the interview. Uh, It's it's kind of one of a kind. Um, It's not really a biography Uh, uh, it's not an autobiography or a memoir it's also not like a comprehensive sweeping history of the entire Jim Crow South it's uh and it's not a polemic either it's really its own thing um and I really loved it so definitely uh buy the book uh support Adolf Reed as always um and on that note I think I will wind things down so good night and we will see you next week